we are living in more and more of a post-Christian world. I am seeing Christians hesitate, maybe even refuse, or be fearful of people who are different, not wanting to connect in any kind of way on the grounds that these sinners are going to contaminate us. And one of the things that I learned from being on the receiving end of Christian hospitality, you know, in a very big way, was it's very helpful when your words are not stronger than your relationships. Hello and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. Today's candid conversation is with Rosaria Butterfield, a sister in Christ who I have wanted to interview since we launched Candid, and I am so grateful we were finally able to connect. Rosaria is a former tenured professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse University. She was converted to Christ in 1999 in what she describes as a train wreck. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBT advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. Rosaria earned her PhD from Ohio State University, then served at Syracuse in the English Department and Women's Studies program from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic field was critical theory specializing in queer theory. Her historical focus was 19th century literature informed by Freud, Marx, and Darwin. She advised the LGBT student group, wrote Syracuse University's Policy for Same-Sex Couples, and actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her lesbian partner. In 1997, while Rosaria was researching the religious right and, quote, their politics of hatred against people like me, end quote, she wrote an article against the Promise Keepers. A response to that article triggered a meeting with Ken Smith, who became a resource on the religious right, the Bible, and also became a confidant and friend. In 1999, after repeatedly reading the Bible in large chunks for her research, Rosaria converted to Christianity. In her first book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, details her conversion and the cataclysmic fallout in which she lost, quote, everything but the dog, yet gained eternal life in Christ. Rosaria's second book, Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ, addresses questions of sin, identity, and repentance that she often encountered during speaking engagements. In her third book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World, Rosaria explores how God used a humble couple's simple invitation to dinner to draw her, a radical, committed unbeliever, to himself. With this story of her conversion as a backdrop, she invites us into her home to show us how God can use this same radical, ordinary hospitality to bring the gospel to our lost friends and neighbors. Rosaria is married to Kent, a Reformed Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, and is a homeschool mother, 
author and speaker. I'm here with my guest, a believer, fellow believer, pastor's wife, mother, author, speaker, and uh, former English professor Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria, thank you so much for being on Candid. Well, Jonathan, it is my privilege and pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Rosaria, I think um, most, uh, if not all of our listeners will be aware of you, aware of uh, your works, uh, your books, um, your uh, work as a speaker. But uh, I think for those who may not, because we have an international uh, listenership, it would be really helpful if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your testimony, uh, and how Christ drew you to himself. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, you know, it's so long ago, it was 20 years ago, that it really does feel like a different lifetime ago. Mm. But 20 years ago, I uh, lived as a lesbian and as an atheist, and I was a recently tenured professor at Syracuse University in the English department and the women's studies program. And because my tenure book was written, I wanted to delve into something that was deeply on my heart. All books start with questions for me. And it was a question, basically, why do Christians despise people who identify as gay? Uh, why can't we uh, just allow consenting adults to disagree on these things? Why, mm. why are Christians such meddlers? Um, why do they believe that the Bible is the true truth? You know, many whys. And so to address these whys, I started reading the Bible and the Lord quickly provided, although I didn't give credit to the Lord at this time, but a Christian neighbor and mm -hmm. pastor, Pastor Ken Smith, who is then the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And Ken and his lovely wife, Floyd, and I became friends. Mm -hmm. And um, it was in the context of that friendship that all of those questions and some I didn't even know I had were answered. And so what I am is a, um, a, a Christian woman who has been wrecked by the gospel, praise be to God, and have had some occasions to write about that and speak about that, but many, many more occasions to just live that out. So that's really that. Hmm. Just off the top of my head, how, how did you come to that worldview while you were uh, that tenured professor at Syracuse? Which worldview? The worldview of... The, the one you held when you were um, beginning to do the work on that book. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sure. Well, I was raised to be a feminist. I was raised by uh, free-thinking, uh, excommunicated Catholics. Um, mm. You know, so I was certainly um, ripe for any kind of worldview that could combine what appeared to be the justice given to the disempowered along with the full articulation of personal feelings as good and necessary. But the various ways that um, a queer and feminist world and life view are not just present on a college campus, but almost required as a way of life. Right. That was just the norm. I mean, you know, it was the air I breathed and the water I drank. And it fit very neatly with my own family's 
understandings of what intelligent people think and do. Mm. So it's important to, I think, for, for Christians to really understand this, that the modern self is the person who invents himself or herself and is accountable to no one but his or her feelings. And it's downstream from a Rousseauian idea that says that people are born good and it's the world and the environment that provides the chains of oppression. And uh, and so that's all, even if it's not articulated, mm. it is um, fully endorsed and held. And mm. so that was my world and I embraced it. And what led to the presuppositions of your views of, of what Christians thought? Um, well, some were actual, just genuine conflict with Christians. I had co-authored the, the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, which was the forerunner to gay marriage. And um, I met with plenty of Christians who gave me plenty of arguments for why that was dangerous and bad. And many of those arguments just seemed so senseless and so Mm. baseless to me. You know, this idea that, well, it was an accusation really that I was part of some conspiracy to tear down the world. And I, you know, it, it, you know, lots of blame shifting and lots of imputation of motive. And, Mm. and I thought, can't these people just, you know, carry on a rational conversation and, you know, and this idea that the Bible is the true truth and, you know, I'm going to tell you, that's a hard, that's a long conversation. It's an important Mm. conversation, but many Christians don't handle the conversation well. I mean, the Mm. the truth is the Bible is the only book on the planet who has a progeny and a God-breathedness that sets it apart from every other book on the planet. Mm. And that's a hard sell right there. Yeah. Okay. You know, so we would do well to actually work that one out for people. But I, you know, it just, it it just made no sense. It made no sense that Jesus was the answer when people couldn't even answer my questions. Mm. To me, answers come after questions, not before. So, right. So I had, you know, I just had plenty of conversations with people that I felt was sufficient anecdotal evidence. Um, you know, and that was that. And, And then I met Ken and Floyd Smith and, uh, they were intelligent, reasonable, rational people mm. who spent an enormous amount of time with me, listening to my questions, listening to my heart, getting to know my friends. I don't know. Probably I had 500 meals at their house before I came to faith. I, maybe that's a, it's a, it's a high bar, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, but it was just what they did. They became my friends. They loved me. And that was really clear. And they were careful with me. I mean, this was certainly back before the days of social media, but I wasn't their project. They weren't blogging about me or tweeting about me or manipulating my story for the purpose of gaining likes or, you know, attaboys. Mm. Um, They were tender with me. They were careful with me. They saw my life and they knew I had a lot to lose and a lot to gain. And Mm. they weren't being careless about that. Mm. And you had an inherent value. Yes. Well, Not you, just uh, for p- some sort of political gain, right? No, no. They treated me like an image bearer of a holy God, and they taught mm. me through our interactions what it meant to treat others like that. Mm. You made an interesting statement um, when you were talking about um, 
writing your book uh, while you were at uh, Syracuse, and that's that all your books start with a question. And so I'm just thinking down that logical track, you know, your first book as a believer was uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So, So what was the question that was behind that book? Well, you know, that was written a while ago, right? And at that point, um, having the history of lesbianism, uh, especially then as a pastor's wife, really set me apart. And the people who knew my history, I would have other pastor's wives and other elders' wives who had either had sexual sin in their past, abortions in their past, or lesbianism in their past come to me Mm -hmm. and say, you know, we're the roadkill of the Christian church, right? And so my question behind that book is, why don't Christians believe in grace? Mm. Why don't they believe I'm a new creature? Mm. I know I am. I believe it. And I believe that about you. Why don't you believe that about me? What is it about this sin and some other sexual sins in general that just make it so hard for you to believe that the blood of Christ, even one drop of the blood of Christ, Mm. would be sufficient not only to redeem me, but to transform me. Mm. Now, uh, we're going to make a little transition here, and and, I, and and a lot of what we just talked about is going to pour back into the, the mm-hmm. sort of second half of our conversation, I, I hope. Um, your uh, most recent book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Now, obviously, Pastor Ken and his wife had a tremendous impact Uh, on you through that, what we talked about, the the 500 meals, right? The Mm -hmm. hospitality. But what was it that drove you to modeling that back out? Right, right, right. Well, just to segue back with one thing about where I was when Ken and Floyd met me, because that affects where we are today. Hmm. I was in New York during the first wave of the AIDS epidemic when people were literally dying on the streets, right? It's hard to explain how that changed the gay community, but it's what created the alphabet soup of LGBTQ. Because before AIDS, you had a lesbian community and you had a gay community and lesbians thought gay men were a bunch of sexual hedonists and gay men thought lesbians were a bunch of political prigs. And that was about it. And then AIDS hit our world and we started having to work together in a different way. And and so it's not actually hospitality. It's a kind of liberal communitarianism in Mm. the gay world, but it was important where, where at least in my gay world in New York, someone's home was open every night of the week for anyone to come just to hear what's going on, and to live like what we called ourselves a chosen family. We would say, you know, this is not my family of origin. The gay community is my family of choice, we would say. And so Ken and Floyd's hospitality found a receptor site in my uh, liberal communitarianism. So the question behind Gospel Comes with a House Key is connected to that because As we are living in more and more of a post-Christian world, I am seeing Christians hesitate, maybe even refuse or be fearful of people who are different, not wanting to connect in any kind of way on the grounds that these sinners are going to contaminate us. 
And one of the things that I learned from being on the receiving end of Christian hospitality, you know, in a very big way was it's very helpful when your words are not stronger than your relationships. And so as Christians feel squeezed out of especially public conversations, my question was, why do you not feel like you can still build relationships? These are not relationships based on deception. These are relationships based on lost dogs and kids who need to be picked up at the bus stop and screen doors that need to be fixed. They're, They're relationships based on real life. And when we have lived together in that way, we very much earned the right to speak into each other's lives. People will almost open the door and ask you for a gospel contact. So that's what gospel comes with a house key was really about. And my husband, whose name is Kent, I know it's hard. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of overlap. One one letter difference. I know one letter difference. Um, You know, he and I were both raised in unbelieving households until our youngest children came to faith. We were the only believers in our extended families. We know what it's like to be lonely. We know what it's like to be mocked. Um, and so the other side to the gospel comes with the house key is building up the church to live like the family of God, mm-hmm. both because if you do so, you are actually living out the gospel in the way that we believe it ought to be lived out. You're addressing problems before they become explosions. You're stepping into the loneliness that people have who might be living as single people or living with people struggling against same-sex attraction or any number of other issues. You know, there are only a boatload of them, but you're, you know, right. But you're also able to provide a powerful Christian witness to the people looking at you from across the street, because there's always somebody to help. If your house is a place where there's always somebody to help you know, there's all, there are always people who need help. It's a mm. great gospel rich combination. Mm. I think I'm about to make a confession, but you know, when I think of hospitality, I sadly think of having people over who I think I will get along with or have things in common with. How do we alter that perception? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's nothing wrong with that. I would just presume that you're going to have something in common with every image bearer of a holy God and that a great place of commonality is the way that people's needs provide an opportunity for gospel grace. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a matter of adjusting our expectations. And this is something that our post COVID world, I think has very much helped us with. You know, we too often in the church, especially we in the church who are privileged to have good jobs, maybe, or good health, or a stable family, or maybe Christian parents, I think we tend to think that we are just entitled to all this grace and glory. You know, we're just entitled to it. And I tend to think we think that other people, and our church included, are blessed by merely sharing our leftovers. Let us get, you know, show up. Here are my gifts. Let me share my gifts. You know, here's what the Bible says about my gifts and your gifts. They're a bunch of filthy rags. 
They're filthy rags that God may choose to use or he may choose to sideline. We don't get to tell God to use our gifts or our perceived gifts. Hmm. So I think it just helps to really look in the mirror of, um, of scripture and realize that we're not called to give the church our leftovers. We're called to give the church our life. We're called to give fellow believers our life. And God's elect people are everywhere. Now, I'm busy, you're busy, and I'm just presuming God really knows that we're busy. And so he's probably going to present us with people who know they're going to hear the gospel. I pray to that end. I, as I walk in the neighborhood, I, I pray that the Lord would prepare the hearts of my neighbors to hear the gospel. But I think too often Christians like to ask the Holy Spirit to do their work. You know, dear Lord, please convert these people. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> not with me, though. Yeah, wait a second. You know, not on my job description, sweetheart. You know, you're called, we are called, and what a holy calling this is. What an amazing thing that God trusts us with this. Mm-hmm. We're called to share the gospel. It requires a perception adjustment. It, it requires a, 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 a sort of understanding, if, if you're trusting and believing in the sovereignty of God, that there's a, a plan and a purpose for where you have been placed. Right. Right. I think sometimes we look around our neighborhoods and think, I wish I lived in a different neighborhood where everyone was nice and kind and right. and probably Christian and, you know, right, we all went right. to the same church. But right. often he doesn't do that. He doesn't put us there. He often puts us in the really difficult places. And I think it requires that attitude of not uh, assuming that something horribly wrong has taken place, but that he's trying to work out his purposes through you. Absolutely. God never gets the address wrong. I mean, he never gets anything wrong, but he never gets the address wrong. He never gets affliction wrong also. Mm, Um, Psalm mm. 119 reminds us that it is in faithfulness that the Lord gives us our affliction. So right now Mm. we are in the middle of a pandemic. God is literally roaring into six out of seven continents. Mm. And he has a purpose for this that we ought not miss. And his purpose is connected to his character, which means that his purpose is good and holy and righteous all the time. Amen. What a perfect segue into uh, the next issue I wanted to bring up, which, of course, again, relates to everything else. But through this COVID crisis, you know, how have you, uh, the author of The Gospel Comes with a House Key, how have you sort of navigated and managed hospitality through this time. Yeah. Well, this is so funny. I'll tell you right now, the Butterfields are living out. The gospel comes with a house key only this time without the training wheels. So the book that you're reading that was, you know, written in 2016 and 17 and published in 2018, that has training wheels on it. I'm sorry to say, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, the gospel comes with a face mask is version two, right? <laughs> so, yes. Well, I, you know, I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, well, the, a funny thing was a neighbor, as soon as we were all put 
into lockdown and we were put into lockdown and, and we really tried to obey that. Let me just tell you, I mean, it's, it might not have looked like we were obeying it, but Butterfields were really trying. Mm -hmm. We were really trying, but here's the deal. Um, the public schools were shut down before parents were home from work. So we had a bunch of kids at our house because where would you like them to be? You know, what should Christians do with their doors that have, you know, hinges? Mm. You know, what should you do with your doors that have hinges? So, so that first week that we were in shutdown, it looked like I was the little old lady who lived in a shoe because we had boatloads of kids. And then, and then the next week you had, you had college students driving home mm. with literally nowhere to stop. So right. we, we probably looked at that point, like we were running a bed and breakfast and, you know, sometimes our neighbors would inquire like, hey, uh, Butterfields, uh, what do you think? And, and we would say these things. We would say, what should we do? What's your thought on this? You know, and our neighbors are, you know, even our unsafe neighbors are reasonable people. And so they would help us think through these things. And it's, it probably sounds like we just have a bunch of excuses for why we couldn't obey the civil magistrate. And maybe that's the case. But but I will tell you that it was never easy to do what we were being asked to do. We did limit a lot of things. And I will tell you that I have learned to wash my hands in a way I've never learned in 58 years of life. And and I promise that I disinfect every surface that doesn't have a cat sleeping on it. It's astounding. Um, but I, you know, there are always people that need help. So even in the very beginning when our church was shut down to only five people in a building at a time, you know, right. we, we had a circumstance where a man, a homeless man walked in needing something. And, you know, here's the, the deal. You, you will do whatever it is in your heart to do. And so mm -hmm. um, we fed him and shared the gospel with him. And then it became a discussion among the other people in there is, you know, did what we do, was that safe? Right. I don't know. You know, I don't, um, well, fairly immediately there became all kinds of shortages in North Carolina. There were, um, of course, toilet paper shortages for reasons no one can understand, but there were also some food shortages because the farmers had food that was packaged for restaurants, not, you know, so my family and I started working in food distribution hmm. and we offered up our church as an essential service to distribute food. And my daughter and I became janitors again, you know, we, and we, I don't, you know, I'm happy to serve in the house of the Lord. So mm -hmm. we are cleaning the church according to COVID standards, which is fine. And we started driving, becoming uh, drivers for, uh, for food distribution. And, you know, we've learned more about health codes and health standards and reading um, spreadsheets than we've ever, you know, done before. And I will tell you that when you deliver food in 90 degree days, you know, and the food comes in boxes that are 25 pounds and you have somewhere between 30 and 50 of those to deliver in a day, you know, you're, you're going to get a good workout and, and you get to meet a lot of people who are in an existential crisis. Mm. And you get to speak to them. They will often ask you what you think. You get to pray for people. You um, And I'll tell you what else happened. Because we, our church was open as an essential service on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it wasn't that big of a move to open it as an essential service on the Lord's Day. Mm. 
And we didn't get, and we thus far have not gotten a lot of pushback for that. Now, you know, we need to be ready for pushback because it's right around the corner. The other shoe has not dropped yet. Um, But we are longing to worship because God commands us to worship. And because worship is giving God back what is his due. And when we remember the plight of the Israelites, the their freedom, their deliverance was a deliverance so that they could worship. Mm. So to have churches shut down, that was one thing in March. It's another thing in July. It's another thing altogether. So I, I just... We, yes, this is risky and, and, and we don't want to be presumptuous. We don't want to be foolish. I, I lived through the first round of the AIDS epidemic and I know that novel viruses don't come with user manuals. They never do. But we also know as Christians that there is no way to flatten this curve. Everyone is going to die. And we also know that while we are not to be foolhardy and foolish and careless, that our days are numbered by a holy and loving God. And there is nothing, nothing that is going to change what is written in the book of life. And so Christians are called to love their neighbor with courage. That may mean that you keep a mask on, but it does not mean that you hide in the corner. There has not been a time during this this crisis where we have not had more to do, more people to feed, more people to care for. I, I'm on a board for a, an organization called Safe Family for Children, and that is a Christian alternative to foster care. It's whole family care. And here in Durham, which has a population of about 270,000 people. On July 31st, we are anticipating 20,000 evictions. Mm. We're looking at that alongside of uh, schools that are not opened. Right. Now, it's my job to go around and ask people to be host families for children and possibly for their parents. That's a big ask in an epidemic, but we've done that before. Martin Luther said, do not flee the plague. The Puritans and and an Orthodox Christian gospel and courage flourished because liberals ran with the fleas. You know, the Bible tells us that the, the, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. And so Christians need to ask themselves, are you being pursued by something right now? Yes, we're living in a time of a plague. And... Ephesians 2.10 still stands. God has still set apart good works for us to do. The plague didn't change that. Mm. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is not a time for Christians to be wringing their hands. This is a time for Christians to be the last people to be in crisis, even if we get sick and even if we die. That's the gospel calls for nothing less. Some of the things that we're doing, my children distribute food. uh, My husband opens the church. I 
you know, clean toilets and surfaces with a new verve and vigor. Um, we all lose a lot of water weight on delivery day and we are thinking through what it would mean to house people who are being evicted. What do you say to the person who, you know, is listening to this and is thinking they're overwhelmed and they think, okay, Rosaria, you've obviously, um, you've got the vision for this and the desire, you know, would you suggest someone start out small um, mm-hmm. or sort of just jump in the deep end? And, and, and what would sort of your suggestions for, for a person who may be overwhelmed by this be? Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it is, we're all overwhelmed. Butterfields are completely overwhelmed. And we also look in the mirror and think we're pretty crazy most of the time too. Um, so not to worry at that. First of all, this is not works righteousness. Right. This is, this is bathed in prayer I believe in a strong church culture. Hospitality is a church effort. Uh, The Butterfields are an outpost. We're not the leaders of this. And so you want to pray about this. You want your elders to be speaking into you right now about this. Um, I sent letters to all the churches in Durham saying, hey, you know, we're going to need host families. I realize that this is a big ask during a pandemic. Who's in? And I want to tell you, not surprisingly, the most conservative churches were the ones who said, I'm in. The mm-hmm. most liberal churches were, were busy, quite frankly, they're busy putting up Black Lives Matter signs right now. Mm-hmm. Now, I realize I just threw a, a bomb in this interview, but I want to tell you that there's a difference between virtue and virtue signaling. And as the mother of four children of color, I am absolutely confident that that sentence is true, that black lives matter. But the slogan in the movement is not a Christian movement. And this is, this is the fruit of intersectionality. If you truly believe that there are people who are righteous because they are victims, then you don't believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. If you believe that there are people who don't need the gospel, because their victimhood makes them righteous, then you need to remember that not even Jesus came to call the righteous. So I would say be prayerful, work with your pastor and elders, but I'll tell you that the minute that we were in lockdown, my neighborhood prayer partner walked over and she said, Rosaria, I am so glad we have been working through this neighborhood for the last eight years. I would hate to have to start a hospitality movement now. From the ground, yeah. Right. And so now is a good time to pray. You know, now is a good time to appeal to the means of grace. Um, It worries me that some churches have been really shut down for way too long. And as a pastor's wife, I'm looking at this situation and I'm seeing two kinds of pastors. The pastors that are literally working day and night, as 1 Thessalonians talks about, and the pastors who have been on sabbatical since March. Mm-hmm. Now, the pastors who have been on sabbatical since March are going to lose the true believers in those churches yeah. to real churches. But the problem are the people who are who are weak and needy and hungry and unhealthy and lonely. Who's helping those people? And so the church really should start with itself, always start with itself. This might be a very, very hard time to think outside of the church, but I'm looking at churches who aren't even caring for their own right now. So start with the basics for sure. And the basics are prayer and scripture reading and being shored up, strengthened by the means of grace. 
to hear what God is telling you to do in the lives of the people he has entrusted to you. And those people are the members of your church and the members of your family and the people with whom you share a zip code. You know, it seems, you know, we talked about it can be difficult to make inroads into these communities where your politics are different, your mm-hmm. philosophies, your worldviews are all different. But it seems like this pandemic has opened an opportunity to, to even having a discourse over the pandemic itself absolutely. and the implications of it. Oh, uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you what you really see in a moment like this is the importance of meeting people where they're at comforting them in their affliction and sharing the gospel. And so, you know, the only social media I'm on is a app called next door. It's a social media app that organizes neighborhoods. I think I'm going to get kicked off once they realize that I tend to use it as my personal evangelistic tool. But anyway, (laughs) as as of the recording right now, I'm still on. And, you know, people would often early on say, I, you know, I need toilet paper. I need Clorox wipes. Well, you know, I would always send a private message and say, here's my address. You can come pick it up or I can deliver it to you. I'm really not afraid of running out of toilet paper and Clorox wipes. I wouldn't say that part, but you know, I'm really, I'm just genuinely not. Um, You know, we have a little neighborhood free library in front of our house that we've always kept Bibles and children's books in. Well, I added toilet paper and Clorox wipes because that became like the thing, right? Um, Yeah, right. Okay. People were so happy about those things. Serve your neighbors, meet them where they are and find out where they hurt and remind them that there is a God who is sovereign over this for our good and for his glory, who is not going to leave them and has sent Christian neighbors to hand them a roll of toilet paper and bring them a meal or whatever else. Share the gospel in relationship. Share it in everyday moments. Share it day after day. These are long gospel conversations. Too often, especially big churches, have thought about programs and short gospel contexts. This is just the opposite. Mm. This is just the opposite. Um, you know, and we have to remember, you know, that book, When Helping Hurts, is a, it's a wonderful book to reread in these times. Um, because it helps us to remember that helping always hurts because people who are hurt and need help need to disclose information that is painful to disclose. Um, but we are going to see more of this and we're going to, we're going to need to share both our resources and our needs. We're going to be on the receiving end as well as the giving end. Hmm. May we be transparent in our repentance and in our need and in our um, resources. And may God magnify that for the purpose of revival. Amen. Now, I wasn't going to go down this track, but you did open the door. Um, I'm always kicking doors open. (laughs) Sorry about that. Did you not get the memo on that one? (laughs) As it relates to the racial police conversation that has, in some sense, overtaken the COVID coronavirus issue, how do you have helpful conversations with people who do view it the way you described it as, as sort of this victimhood and inherent righteousness within that? Right, right, right. Absolutely. Uh, Well, again, it helps to be in relationship with the people you're having these conversations. And so 
I will tell you, for the young people at church who have much to teach us, I spend a lot of time listening. Mm. I wrote an article not so long ago on how intersectionality does not serve the gospel. And so I've had a lot of young people ask me, but what about this? But what about that? And so sometimes, you know, your writing can be a a touchstone for that. I live in a very liberal neighborhood. Literally every neighbor's front yard has a sign of some kind. And my job as I'm walking my dogs is to keep them from lifting their legs on these signs, which is no, I'm just going to tell you, that is not a good gospel witness. And so it's been challenging because you know, you know, if you're a dog owner, how tempting those signs are. But I often have people, I mean, daily have people ask me, why don't you have a sign up or what do you think about this? And so I'll go through this. I know I'll, I'll often say, well, do you have an hour or come on over for dinner? Yeah, exactly. You know, do you have time? But, but you know, these signs have things like black lives matter. I'll say oh, the sentence is absolutely true, right. Right. but have you read the fine print on the organization? I don't mm-hmm. believe that um, a neo-Marxism or uh, an attack against the nuclear family is the solution. And so I, I, you know, another line on that sign is women's rights are equal rights, you know, and that always gives me a chance to talk about, among other things, adoption. Mm. We've had the privilege of adopting four children and abortion, um, Mm. you know, with a special tenderness to post-abortive women. We need to talk about this, remembering that Satan makes victims on all counts for everybody who's a participant in any kind of sin. And so, you know, another sentence on that sign is love is love. And often I'll have my neighbors say, but it's so authentic. How can an authentic love not be, you know, not be? Not because self-defining word. Right. And I'll say, well, you see this dog I'm walking here, you know, th- I have eight chickens in my backyard and he loves those chickens. And believe mm-hmm. me, it's authentic. Yeah. But they don't love him back. Right. You know, like, so th- the problem is, and I'll just say this to people, the problem is that mobs don't think well. Mm. They never have and they never will. But, you know, the gospel is meant to realistically work through the defense and the care of victims. Mm. The gospel cares about justice and the gospel cares about restoring souls to a holy God. Mm. But I can't repent of a sin I haven't committed. So that's the problem with structural racism and calling me to repent of my Caucasian race. Um, I think I started, I said before that I'm on this board, we have safe family for children. We have 20,000 evictions at the end of the month. I put this, you know, we learned about this, uh, you know, and we put these numbers forward and I had someone come to me and say, well, actually, because, you know, we've got so many white women on this board, I really think, we should spend six weeks having uh, talking about our whiteness and having a racial understanding. And, and Rosaria, have you ever thought about the fact that your having adopted four children of color is a microaggression? Exactly. And so that's where, you know, I'm sorry, but that is exactly where when you're on a board, you want to do two things. If you're Rosaria, you need to remember that your Christian witness is important. So you should not use salty language, mm-hmm. but you are allowed to laugh out loud. And you are allowed to say, that's just the dumbest thing I've heard all day. 
So you know what? If we all need to go to therapy, let's go to therapy after we get 20,000 households figured out. See, it's Mm -hmm. mesmerizing to be part of a movement that promises so much solution and also that has tapped into a genuine problem. You know, so we have two conversations going on. You know, we have the conversation of what's wrong with intersectionality. And, you know, I have a 17 year old son who's just starting to drive and he's a man of color. And guess what? We've got to talk about what it looks like to other people through the lens of racism. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying Black Lives Matter is not only not the solution, that's Satan's greatest delight right now mm. to shake Christians up and get us heading in the, in the wrong direction. Mm. There is no gospel for the righteous. Mm. You said, um, Mobs don't think well, and I'm just I'm just tracking a, a little thread that you that you sort of started early on, and you talked mm-hmm. about how before your conversion, what led to your presuppositions on on who Christians were and the way they thought, just kind of again, just tracing this line of the importance of knowing and understanding our faith and being able to speak about it helpfully with people. And also listening well. I think that most people would have looked at me 20 years ago and thought, well, listen, this is a really dangerous person. This is not, not only is she a lesbian, but she's a, she's an activist and she's a professor and she writes books and she writes public policy. And, you know, we've got to shut her up. And the thing she needs to realize is that her lesbianism is a deep, dark, terrible, evil, rotten, disgusting sin. And she needs to repent of that. And then maybe we can talk. And Ken Smith looked at me and thought, huh, well, she doesn't know Jesus. Because if she knows Jesus, all those other things are going to come into play. Maybe not all at the same time. And maybe not all in a way that looks really seamless and neat. So we have to be careful about how we look at other people. And then I think we need to handle the word better. You know, if we want people to be good readers of the Bible, then we have to stop reading it like a four-year-old learning, you know, phonetics for the first time. I mean, I can't tell you how many Christians, they've got the verse a day going, you know, this is my verse today and this is my verse tomorrow and it's scattered, it's out of context. and, And then they can't, they don't know what the Bible means. And, you know, I tell people, if you try to read Jane Eyre that way, it won't work either. That's right. I mean, you know, it just won't. It's a book. It's not meant to be read like like you're crazy. Just, you know, yeah. read it. There's read genres it. and right. context. and read it. read it. Love it. Love this word, especially if your church is shut down right now. Mm. What excuse do we have for not having already read through the Bible since March? What's, you know, what are we doing? This is our lifeline. This is... It is a supernatural book. It is the word of God alone that meets the needs of sinful men mm-hmm. and women and children. Mm-hmm. And if we are not not only reading it, but reading it with the posture that it reads us, it's that double-edged sword. We don't read it to dissect it, to critique it, to attack it. We read it because it's dissecting us in order to rid us of what's going to kill us. Have we spent time letting it do that? 
before we talk to other people, what's in there? Are we ourselves humbled before a holy God? And, and are we in that posture of humility as we share the gospel with others? We've spent a lot of time talking, and I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of the day. Uh, I do have another question, and um, you can probably tell my my thinking doesn't always follow a, a nice linear pattern. It sort of bounces around. And I, I think you've answered a lot of this just in our, our conversation now and a lot of what I've read from what you've written. But to me, it feels like this is the hardest thing is to try and share the gospel with someone whose lifestyle and identity and everything is completely wrapped up in something that is mm-hmm. not recognized by God. You know, essentially, right. the question really boils down to right. sort of, do we, do we address the sin? Or is there a sense of sort of waiting on the spirit and, and doing the hospitality thing and just being patient and waiting for it to come out? I, you know, I've heard you talk about you'll even have Bible study when you have uh, neighbors over for always. a meal. Yeah, always. We all, we, we, and that's what Ken and Floyd did, that it was never – people don't catch the, the gospel by osmosis. Right. In the same way that Christians don't just fall into sanctification. Right. Would just always do right. is you know at the end of the meal the kids you know bring the dishes to the sink and they pass down Bibles and sometimes our unsuspecting neighbors will say hey Kent what's what's going on here what's this yeah. you know, what, what are these books what are these books and you know we'll just say it's just a Christian home this is family devotions you're at our table part of our family right now or you know you're not stuck here there's no there's no gorilla glue on your chair if you need to leave leave but we're going to read a passage of the Bible or in a chapter of the Bible and then we'll talk about it and then we're going to pray. And we're going to do that because we can't answer these questions by ourselves. No. We can't solve these problems by ourselves. We need a, a holy and loving God to do that. So, uh, you know, stay if you'd like, leave if you'd like, and people stay. People more than not stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say it's always both and. Right. You know, I would say it's always both and. And what people should see about you, they should see that you give up things for the gospel too. Mm. They, sh- they should not presume, they should not be seeing all of your, you know, whatever, like you just being entitled to vacations and, you know, they should see a lot of sacrifice. You know, when I lived in Syracuse, New York, I would look across the snow, you know, born tundra and think, you know, that neighbor across the street with a snowblower, I want to be that person's friend, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Yep. And, and you know what? That's how that's how unbelievers should look at our Christian homes. They they should see look at look at the way you know they live sacrificially, they live carefully, and yet God blesses them. Or you know they have blessings. They their children are kind. They cut our lawn. They have help. They we should have cast that kind of image. But the deep things are always deeper than they appear. So your lesbian neighbors, their biggest problem in life might not be that they're lesbians. You know, it it really might be that, uh, you know, somebody just got a really scary cancer diagnosis or there's domestic abuse. There's depression. Um, Don't presume that you know that you've got a kind of profile on people. You don't. There's an image bearer of the holy God. It's only the word of God that will ever meet the, that person's deepest heartfelt needs. And furthermore, your your neighbors who identify as gay are being manipulated. And I think that's very important to realize right now. Mm. 
you know, we are living in a world of a kind of hyper identity politics. The end of Romans one witnesses to this moment when it makes it clear that if you cannot receive a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. The, the quote unquote transgender movement, you know, there's, it was never a movement before there were SOGI laws and enterprising policymakers realized that if you put sexual orientation and gender identity together, you could really cover a lot more political ground. The people who identify as transgendered are being completely manipulated by the gay rights movement. I say that to them. I say that out loud. I say the gay rights movement is manipulating you, but Jesus never will. And you know what? Nobody's thrown a tomato at me in my kitchen or dropped down dead. I say things like, I I think that gay may be how you are, not who you are. And nobody's ever thrown a cup of you know coffee in my face. You know these are people I love. These are my neighbors. We talk. Yeah. Um, they know my story. They know my history. I'm an open book. I think we do have to be ready to leave a little skin in the game. Yeah. You know the days of evangelism explosion or inviting your neighbors to a picnic and making somehow the dirty work of a heartfelt conversation with tears and snot and Kleenex. Mm. That's not somebody else's job anymore. Yeah. It's your job. It's my job. But I think we do have to clearly understand that, that there is no such thing as a gay person. There is such a thing as a gay community, and there is such a thing as gay sex, and there is such a thing as a gay identity. But personhood is owned by God. Mm-hmm. What makes us a person is that we have an image of our great God inside us. And only in Christ can that image reflect in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And if we remember that, we won't get sucker punched by Satan who wants you to believe somehow that the people who identify as gay have more to give up than everybody else. That's absurd. And you can thank the gay Christian movement for that, Uh, especially the side B people, you know, and it just reminds me, this is a great moment for satire. It it reminds me of a a famous satirical quote from Jane Austen, where she said, oh, yes. And you know what? My sore throats hurt more than everybody else's too. God knows God is able to deliver the righteous from their trials and their temptations God does not give a command that is burdensome without giving you the grace to fulfill it. And every single person is called, if they hear the gospel and respond in repentance, to die to themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. And that will include entering into what Philippians calls the fellowship of his sufferings. Not Not because we're masochists but because we live for the glory of God and his glory is so glorious that it makes the cheapness of our sin even more vile. And anyone who tells you, and this is where these side B Christians, they are pulling the wool over people's eyes. Truly converted people hate their sin. They may be tempted in all ways, But truly converted people hate their sin Mm. because that's what it means to be truly converted. So to have a bunch of 
not truly converted people who are cultural Christians running the church is absurd. It's like the kindergarten classroom that just keeps going out and getting more kindergartners, thinking that if we just put 50 of them in the room, they're going to teach each other how to read. I'll figure it out. Yeah. That's not how any of this works Mm. because God is glorious and he knows what we need and he knows what we don't need. And I don't care how delicious Satan and the world make sin look. Mm. It's despicable and it makes you want to wretch if you've repented of it. Well, Rosaria Butterfield, I think uh, if they let me, I would talk to you for another couple of hours. <laughs> this has been a great privilege of mine to have you on Candid. The privilege is mine entirely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a friend leave a review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. By subscribing, you make sure you never miss an episode. It's delivered to you as soon as we release it. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Check out our show notes for more information on resources from today's guest. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.